welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the Gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the City of Lagos and beyond renewed by the Gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Good morning, church. Um, I'm going to be reading, rather our Bible reading is going to be taken from the book of Zechariah. Um, chapter 7 from verse 4 to verse 10. When I'm done reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Can you respond with? Thank you. Thank you. Zechariah chapter 7 from verse 4 to 10. Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. This is the word of the Lord. To God. Thank you, Ojodala. Thank you very much. And Good morning once again. If you're just joining us or you're just coming in or you're just um, clicking, you're just coming out, getting out of bed. Um, Yeah, we're happy to have you on this special Justice Sunday. Okay, so um, on days like this, hopefully the sermon should not overshadow everything. But we'll be for the preacher to be overshadowed in in the church that he leads. I'm not going to allow that now. Well, okay, um, maybe I start this, um, I want to introduce, have you got the picture ready? I want to introduce you to these two people. Who are these, uh, these two people? Yes, meet Beth and Bez, Beth and Bez. Uh, this is a picture of them in 2008, 2008. Why are they relevant? They are relevant because that's my delightful niece and nephew. Right, my niece and nephew. Now, on the surface of it, on the face of it, they are very um, unlike each other. They are not the same. And you can see it. One is male, the other one is female. Am I blocking you? Okay. One is male, the other one is female. One is fair. The other one is dark. Right now, one is sporty. The other one is not so sporty. You know, they are different. And the most significant difference between them Um, at least for the purpose of what we're talking about, the most significant difference is one of them adores their uncle. (laughs) 
um, they, this particular uncle. They think that he is the best uncle, not just in their lives, the best uncle that God has ever created. To which all of us say, to which all of us say, ah, well, you will not disgrace me in this church. Unlike the other one, the other one is like a traitor. And I know they are watching. I told them I will introduce them. And so the one knows them, themselves. You better fix up. All right? All right. So they are, they are not. They are, they are very different. On the surface of things, you think they are very different. But their obvious differences hides um, something uh, that showed that in some sense, they are one and the same. They are twins. Now, obviously, unidentical twins, but they are twins none the same. In some sense, they are very unalike, and in some sense, they are very alike, unidentical twins. You see, in the passage that Ojodale read for us, we actually have unidentical twins there as well. You have religious people and irreligious people. The religious people like to fast. You can see that in verse 6. Right, they fast a lot. I saw in verse five. Right, there were people that were fasting, but in verse six we see the irreligious guys. They were just feasting. Now, if that's the case, you can see how different they are. Then, in what way are they alike? Why do you say that they are twins as well? Well, it has everything to do with what happened when God judged their ancestors, their ancestors in Judah. We didn't read that passage, but if you read the remaining part of chapter 7, verses 11 to 14, you see that God sent their ancestors into exile. God punished their ancestors. He said, look, I was calling out to these people. They didn't listen to me. So when they didn't listen to when I called, I won't listen to them when they called. And so I sent them into exile. And so God is saying the same thing that was happening there is being repeated here. That their hearts were not in the right place. He says, they lived very self-indulgent lives. So God is about to judge these people or they are not seeing God work out in their lives and they are wondering why. And many people have said, ah, it's because of the religious folks. They, are, uh, they don't live a life of piety, right? They are self-indulgent. They just like to feast and they uh, indulge in revelry and their sinful lives. God will say, you are not incorrect, but that's just an easy answer because it's not just them that have a problem. In fact, in verse 6, you see that God actually, verse 5, you see that he indicts also the very religious ones. In verse 6, he tells the irreligious ones, ah, were you not just feasting for yourselves? You are selfish. But in verse 5, he tells the religious ones, were you really fasting for me? They too were very self-centered and selfish. They were alike, yet different in expression. You see, God was saying, and we see this in verse 7, that the same condition that plagued the people in the previous prophet's time, like Jeremiah's time. At that time, they were prosperous. The land was at rest. He says, look, it doesn't matter whether you change the circumstances, what those people suffered then or what they were plagued by then, you also are plagued by now. Your heart is not in the right place, and God is going to prove it to them, to show them that their hearts are not in the right place. You know what he says about them? In verse 8 and 9, we read this. Their hearts were void of compassion and mercy, and this was demonstrable in the fact that they lacked acts of true justice. Should I say that again? This was the problem they had. Their heart was not in the right place. Why? The heart was void of mercy and compassion, and it was demonstrated in the fact that there were lack of acts of 
justice. Now, when it comes to the irreligious, it's very easy to see that those ones, they have compassion or mercy. Like, they made money, they blew money on themselves, right? They, they spent, they lived a comfortable life, but at the same time, they feasted and feasted and feasted. They, it's not hard to see. But the irreligious ones, you'd be like, no, but God, we study our Bibles. We have, we pay our tithes. We go to church. We sing, God is a wonderful wonder. We only play Nathaniel Bassi. We don't play Ashake. How can you say that you have a problem with us? You see, the problem with them is this. They thought that to really have favor with God, you just had to live personal righteous lives or personal just lives. But God says that true justice isn't just personal. It is what? Social as well. Let's say that together. True justice isn't just personal, but social as well. And he proves it because he is not saying that the fasting is wrong. Fasting in itself is not wrong. But that was personal justice. Well, to live a personal just life. But he says this, you guys, you didn't administer true justice. Why? Because I can tell you that you ignored what has been called the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable. Who? The widow, the fatherless, the immigrant or the foreigner, and the poor or the poor outcast. If truly you are a Christian or if truly they were believers, you would not ignore these ones. Jesus says, you should have done this, tithing, but you should not have ignored the weightier matters of the law. Amen. And so what God is even saying to us under the sound of my voice is that I would know if you are truly a genuine follower of mine, not just if you do the personal righteous things, the personal just things, but you administer true justice. And I pray that this sermon, after this sermon, will be people move to do true justice. I want to quickly just do two things in this sermon. I want to answer two questions. How do we administer true justice? Why do we administer true justice? So let's go into that quickly. First one, how do we administer true justice? Now, this topic is treated most de- in a most detailed way in the Old Testament. Uh, now, Christians, please run away from people that say, um, I'm a New Testament Christian, right? You should be a Bible believer. That's Old Testament and New Testament. Now, Old Testament and New Testament, you have to be careful on how you understand what, what works for us and what doesn't. But nonetheless, we are Bible people, Old and New Testament. So this, and don't forget, the Old Testament is just larger than the New Testament. And there are certain themes in the Old Testament that the New Testament does not feel the need to over-elaborate because it's been well-treated in the Old Testament. All right, so this issue of biblical justice. What is biblical justice? It's fully treated well in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament... So understanding, and again, New Testament, I'll quote some New Testament passages. The Old Testament understanding of justice has to do with two concepts I want to bring together. The first is this. It's always about righting a wrong. Writing, not with W, writing R, right? R-I-G-H-T. Writing a wrong. There was a wrong that was committed. How do I write the wrong? It's always about writing a wrong. Did we get that? The second thing is that whenever you speak about justice, check in the whole Um, uh, uh, Bible, it is always, human beings are at the center of it. It is always about one human being 
administering justice to another. The converse is true as well. When you speak about injustice, it is one to another. It is not about rocks. It's not about chairs. It's not really even about trees. It's about human beings, all right? So the first concept is what? That righting a wrong. And this is always seen within the context of human beings. So we can, with that, we can say two things about biblical justice. The first is this. It is righting a wrong person by punishing and rehabilitating them for making someone else suffer. Is, is it there? It should be there. It's righting a wrong or a bad person by punishing and rehabilitating them for making someone else suffer. This is what we call retributive justice. Amen. Someone commits a crime, and then if you do the crime, you do the time. All right? That's retributive justice. And this is how most of us think about justice. But actually, in the Bible, far more than this is another one. And what is this? It is writing a person by punishing and rehabilitating the bad condition that makes them or made them, makes them suffer. That's what we call restorative justice. So you see, there are two types of justice, right? One is about writing a wrong person. The other one is about writing a wrong condition. You write the wrong person for making another person suffer. You write the wrong condition for making people suffer. Are we following? And I say that the second one, actually, you find more of the second one in the Bible. It's not to say that the first one is a problem. It's just that we have more of the second one. Now, I think most of us won't argue that the Bible commands the first one. We won't argue. In fact, we'll say that it's a biblical requirement. If somebody's wrong, you must punish the guilty. But sometimes we think about the other one and we think about it as optional. That's why we use the word mercy more. And say, well, I want to be like God. I show mercy on who I will show mercy. It's not that I am commanded to because I'm not responsible for. I am meant to do it in an optional way. And I think the Bible says, nah. A couple of months ago, a few weeks ago, I had um, lunch with, um, with the Eugenicas, and they at one point thanked me for the support that we give them as a church. And I said, no, no, no. And I don't flatter. I'm not trying to be, uh, show fake humility here. I said, no. It's me that has to thank you guys. Because through you guys, uh, we as a church and me as a person, I'm able to fulfill a commandment that God is requiring of me. Now, somebody may say something like this, but I'm not responsible for the poverty of the poor in my city. Mm? I've never made anybody poor. Mm. Now, let me quickly say this. While you, have, you may not be personally guilty, we are personally and corporately responsible. While you may not be personally guilty, we are personally and corporately responsible. Let me explain with this example. I'll use myself. I live in a part of Lagos where house rent and prices make it impossible for the vast majority of Lagosians to live there. They just can't because they can't afford it. And I live there not simply because of my hard work. I try to work hard, but it's not simply because of my hard work. Now also, let me tell you, because of uh, God's goodness to me, my earning power and my spending capacity, that area that I live, that a lot of us live in, that area also then attracts the best amenities around. The best schools are there. The best hospitals are there. The best roads are there. The best banks are there. The best restaurants are there. 
And as they are there, they are not where the most vulnerable are. Fact or fiction. It's not simply their fault. Let me take it further. Because of my earnings, I have inevitably, partly ensured, it's it's an inevitability, partly ensured that these important amenities will be present where I am to the exclusion of where those people are. Let's take it even further. The poor people that serve me in different capacities, because they cannot live around this area, they have to live further and further away. So when they are coming to serve me, have you seen the sun lately? Transport time and the physical exertion that they have, that they have expended, means that they are not going to be as productive as I am. Fact or fiction. They don't get the time to read as much as I do. Fact or fiction. But it's even worse. If that's for them, now think about their children. Because they spend so much more time on the road, coming back and going forward, do you know what? Their children have less access to to them than my children have to me. You see, my children can come back at 4 o'clock. I'm, I have the luxury of being able to work from home. And my children say, Daddy, welcome. I can drop them off, and I can see them immediately they come back. Their school is very close to where I am. But for them, their own children will probably see them at 6 a.m. this day, and will not see them until 6 a.m. the next day. So they, the parental developmental needs that they need, they don't have. Their children also have access to poorer schools because of where they live than mine. Their children eat less meals than mine and less nourishing meals than mine. Their children have access to poorer hospitals than mine. Can you see that the system in general is so stacked up against them that it is very hard for them to break out of that system and also for their children to come out of it? Do you see that? It is not just an individualistically. It is systemic. Why am I responsible for it? I am responsible for their plight because I participate in a system and benefit from a system that further entrenches their poverty. I, have, I know how to gain the system. I had the lock, of, or the lock of where I was born or who I was born to. And so I went to better schools, I went, and everything continues to go on. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. I said responsible, I didn't say I'm guilty. Because I did not create the system, I made it there. And my parents were not going to say, ah, this system is very bad, so we're not going to give our children the best opportunity to work through the system. Are you following what I'm saying? We are, rest, we are not guilty, therefore I should not be punished. I don't feel guilty. God is not calling you to feel guilty. What God is saying is for you to be aware that this is what you have benefited from. So whilst you are not guilty, you are what? Responsible. To whom much is given, much is what? Required. And so God is saying because that system is so like this, because you have benefited from the system, it is not an option to do justice when you have the time. It is what a command. He has shown you, O mortal, what is required of you. Yes, to walk humbly before the Lord. Yes, to love mercy. But to what? Act 
justly. It is not he has shown you, oh mortal, what is desirable of you. He has shown you, oh mortal, what is what? Required. It's a command. It's not simply mercy. It's justice because we don't see mercy. The proof of mercy is acts of justice. Amen. You can say you love your spouse. If you love your spouse without the actions to prove it, do you really love them? You can say, I have mercy. The only way you show mercy is through acts of justice. Praise the Lord. So with that, let me quickly tell you three ways that we can, um, in which we can participate in administering true justice and the effect it has or the things that we can do. Three things. One, dignity. Two, generosity. And three, advocacy. One, dignity. Two, generosity. Three, advocacy. Dignity. Can I say before I get to the other two things that the deepest problem you will find with this quartet of the vulnerable in our society, the deepest problem they have is, a, is not what they don't have. The deepest problem is not their lack of possession. You know what it is? It is a loss of self-worth and esteem. That's why one of the things that gave me the greatest joy, just we seeing these children here, with all they are doing was the abandonment and the young God that just decided to have the confidence to say, I will stay behind, because that wasn't scripted. I will stay behind to actually thank you guys one more time. Most children that are destitute don't have that same kind of confidence. That self-esteem, that worth. But this is what they lose. Because, you know, our societies are structured in a way that reminds you that the less you have means the less you are. James says this, and how we show it, because it's also a problem with us in church. And James said it was a problem then, you know it's still a problem now. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Let me give you an example. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. Two of them, you've already uh, looked at, did this one come with a G-Wagon, did this one come with using transport, something like that. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, or you say to the poor man, you, stand there, or sit on the floor by my seat, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Judges with evil thoughts? Judges with evil thoughts, you know what they do? They administer injustice. And when they administer injustice, verse 6 then says, you have dishonored or disrespected the poor. You've taken away their dignity. It says, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should not do these things. Why shouldn't you do them? Because the God that made them and the God that saved them does not do that. He lifts up. He lifts us up in our low estate. He gives us dignity. Proverbs 22 verse 2 says this, that the maker, rich and poor, have this in common. Rich and poor have this in common. What? The Lord is the maker of them all. Then that James also, chapter 2 verse 5, that we didn't read, this is what he says. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? Not him. To be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised to those who love them. Why do you give dignity to them? Why? Because they have the same creator as us and they have the same savior as us. The creator and the savior of the universe gives them dignity. You have no right not to. So how can we give them dignity? When you offend somebody that you think is below your, your social class, you know what you should do? 
Apologize. And that seems very, very simple. I see it all around. We find it very hard to do. How many of us, for those who are domestic helps in our, in, in our, in our houses, some people, it is even, they, they even have this sort of thing. It is impossible for me to, for, for, for me to offend my domestic help. It's not even a category. You, you see what I'm saying? If it's not a category, can you ever apologize? Speak to them as equals. Enter into their world. Don't start interpreting their world. Try to understand their world from where they are. And then encourage them. If one of them is 20 years older than you, call them sir and ma. Sir and ma, madam and oga is not simply because of your social standing. Are you following what I'm saying? Give them dignity. Second thing, generosity. You know, God set up, if Israel followed the system that God set up for them, an economic system, they should never have actually had any poor person. He set up a system to have stopped intergenerational poverty. This is what Deuteronomy 15 verse 4 and 5 says. It says, however, there need not be any poor among you. For in the land God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. We know what happened after that. They didn't follow. What way was God, what are some of the systemic things that God was putting in place in that place to ensure that there will be no poor among them? Well, there were two of them. One is this, that you lend freely to the poor, and the second was that you cancel all debts at the end of, at, uh, in the seventh year. There was a seventh year. And God already said, hey, I understand how some people will think, because this is a command. So let's say you're in the sixth year. Let's say you're in the sixth year. Then the poor needs money. <laughs> you see, ah, ah, da, 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 lie, lie. come in two years' time. You know, God said, said, if you think, like I said, be careful not to have all this wicked thought. The seventh year, the, the year for cancer death is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. Verse 10. He then said, then they may appeal to them, give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord will, your God will bless you in all your work and everything you put your hand to. Are you following God says, actually, at some point, we let go of the debt. If you do that, you can imagine there will not be intergenerational poverty because the children will not be, will not be laden with debts that their parents had. And somebody said, that's not fair. Well, you say it's not fair because you think you're a self-made millionaire. There's no such thing as a self-made person. Whatever you do, yes, even the hard work and what the hard work produces, it is on the basis of God's grace. First of all, who were your parents? Which school did you go to? Which area? In all of these things, what do we have that does not belong, that does belong to us? So that's why in another system, God set up what you call the gleaning system. So if you had a piece of land and you are about to, you are harvesting the crops of your land, right? You take, you, you take all the things that are there, but sometimes you miss out on some. And so the Bible says, when you miss out on some, don't go back. When you are harvesting in your field, this is Deuteronomy 24, 19, and you overlook a sheep, do not go back and get it. Leave it. For who? The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. You see the quartet of the vulnerable coming up there, right? So that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You see, the blessing comes from, an, from a radical heart of generosity. So he's saying this. 
The land belongs to you, not absolutely. It somehow also belongs to others. They are meant to come and glean. Now, some people hear that and say, hey, is this not some kind of biblical communism, some kind of socialism? No, because before 24, is 23. God says something in verse 20, chapter 23, verse 24, 25. He's now talking to the people that glean. If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want. Your neighbor's what? Is their own, not your own. You may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. Or it's the same thing with grain. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. The fact that God gives you some kind of right to benefit from them doesn't mean that he's saying it is now your own. This is not about wealth distribution. It's not about somebody has made money. Dangote has made a lot of money. We should take Dangote's money and split it away. No, no, no. God isn't saying that. But God is also saying to a large extent, you who have money, that money doesn't totally belong to you. So if it doesn't belong to the poor and doesn't totally belong to you, who does it belong to? Exactly. And he's saying that I have given you that so that you can use it for yourself, but also it is required of you to be generous with it. Guys, we must look for every excuse to be very, very generous. And the third thing is advocacy. You know, one of the things I've come to realize as I've grown older is that when you think about wealth, don't only think about wealth in terms of financial terms. In fact, probably one of the most important forms of wealth is what we call social capital. The people, your friends. I am not boasting. I, I think it's true. I don't think I can sleep on the street, though, no matter how bad I mismanage my funds. You know why? Because if I run bankrupt, if I run bankrupt, my parents are still here. I'll go to their house. <laughs> if I've offended my parents too much so that they say, Lala, you're not coming back, I have my siblings. And my siblings have their husbands. Then if it's really bad with my siblings, then my wife, she has siblings as well. Do you understand? And they will, yeah, Ibuku, Ibube, will I, where are they, self? Where are they? No, let me, will I be on this? You know. Do you understand? And if family fails, I, well, that's my, the, not, if I still have extended cousins, all of that. And if all of that fails, I have friends. Francis, Moses, family, but I have no problem. And if all of that still fails, I have you guys. You, uh, 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 social capital. And it says this is a form of wealth. But this is the one thing that the vulnerable do not have. Look at Proverbs, 20, uh, Proverbs 19 verse 4. It says that wealth attracts many friends, but even the closest, the closest friend of the poor. It says when katakata busts, they run away. It says because I have my own problem. I can't carry somebody else's problem. Do you see? He said the rich have many friends, but the poor, they, have, oh, they run away when Katakata boss. They lack social capital. And once they don't have friends with certain influence, when bad things happen to them, one of our gospel communities, one of the things they did one time was to help people who are in prison, who are wrongfully in prison, but nobody could pick up their case because they didn't have any friends. They didn't have anybody to speak up for them. And it says, Christians, Psalm 41 verse 1 says, Blessed is the one that has regard for the weak. We can't keep quiet when we see these things. Or Proverbs uh, uh, 29 verse 7 says, The righteous, the righteous, the just, care about justice for the poor. But the wicked, because of me, myself, and I, they have no such concern 
Guys, this is not what God is calling us to do. It's not just about hitting another contract. It's not just about being comfortable in your household. It's not just, and it's not just optional. Can you see this? He said that we should have the same, we should have the concern. You know what advocate, why advocacy is required? Advocacy assumes and rightly assumes that while we may all in this country or in this city, while we may all have equal rights, we do not have equal access to those equal rights. We don't. So we must speak up. First, that one verse eight and nine. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the right of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Define, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Or let me uh, Psalm eighty-two verse three and four also says the same thing. And so, what must we do? We must spend time with them. Yes, give to them. Yes. But we must take up their cause with the voices that we have and the influence that we have. With the voices we have and the influence, let us speak up where we can. Let us advocate. Let us speak to we that have friends. You may not be able to do something about it, but you have a friend who has a friend that can. Don't just say it is not my business. God has settled my own. Like Hezekiah that said, ah, this bad thing that will happen, at least it's not going to happen in my own day. So if that's how we can, quickly, why do we administer true justice? Earlier, I quoted James 2, verse 1. James says that believers, eh -eh, you are not meant to behave in this way. It is not expected that people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ are going to live in this way. We shouldn't show favoritism. Why does he have such an expectation? Because of the God we serve. Both the God of the Old and New Testament. Deuteronomy 32, a very famous passage in verse 4, says this. God's ways are not just just. His ways are just because he is just. A God of faithfulness without what? Injustice. Upright and just is he. All his ways are just because he is just. Now, that God that is just and all his ways are just, guess what? He created the world, didn't he? And if he created what, can I suggest to you that he created the entire world with the shape of justice put into it because it is through him that he created all things. That's why we know the famous um, uh, uh, passage that Martin Luther King Jr., I always quote it almost every year, right? The moral arc of the universe may be long, but it always bends towards justice. God has shaped this universe with a sense of justice in it so that when we practice injustice, something is bent out of shape. We say it is wrong. Injustice is wrong because the universe has a shape of justice. We say justice is right because it has a shape of justice. This God that we are talking about, when he created, because he's a God of justice, when he created, he created human beings with dignity. He created us in his image. This God, whether you are wicked or you are righteous, righteous or unrighteous, he causes his reign to fall both on the just and the unjust. This God, if you, are, if you crush the needy and you don't defend their right in court, Proverbs 22 verse 23 says, hey, do not exploit the poor because they are poor and do not crush the needy in court for the Lord will take up their case. God is calling us to do exactly what he does because we are created in his image. But it's even more. If he creates the world with the shape of justice, 
And now the world is falling and people live in sin and there's a lot of injustice. And the hope of the world is that God is creating a new world, what we will call salvation. How do you think he's going to do it? Through justice, isn't it? Let me show you an amazing passage as I come to a close. Romans 3, 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Injustice everywhere. Personal and social injustice everywhere. All have sinned. All have sinned. All have sinned. But he then says this. If all have sinned, all are in wrong standing. How can God make those who are wrong, how can he make them right? And how can he make them right in a way that he does not compromise his own rightness? In other words, how can God make the unjust just without compromising his justice? The people that will inhabit the new world, how can God truly make them just? He then tells you. He says, those all who are falling short of the glory of God, he says, and all are what? Justified. They are made right freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. That doesn't sound fair. How can you make the ungodly righteous? Isn't that compromising his justice? And then he says, God presented this Christ that is saying that he's making them just through. He presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness or the same word, diakosune. He used this to demonstrate his justice so as to be just and to be the one who justifies those who have come faith in Jesus Christ. Let me explain that to you. Never miss this because Martin Luther calls this part of the Bible. He said this is the center of Romans and the center of the entire Bible. You cannot misunderstand this. God makes those who are unjust, just. And he does not compromise his justice so that he can be just. So what does he do? He looks at those who are unjust. And of course, retributive justice says that we must receive the just penalty for our sins. But instead of putting it on them, God pours out his retributive justice on Jesus. God takes responsibility for the sins that he did not commit. But he decided that he was going to save people. So he poured out his retributive justice upon his son. So that what can happen? So that he can give us restorative justice eternally. Did you hear that? And so in making the ungodly just, God does not compromise his justice so that he may be just and the justifier of those that believe in Jesus Christ. He makes us just without compromising his justice. What then is expected of the people who were made just through the justice of God? They should do what? So can I give you a tongue twister? The just were justified by the justice of the just judge so that they can do justice. Do I say it again? The just were justified by the justice of a just judge to do justice. Brothers and sisters, we are called to do justice. Because the God who saved us is a God of justice. And he saved us through the justice of the wrath that he poured out on his son. So that you can be just people. Justice is not just personal. Justice is also social. I want to give you one more thing as I close. You see, as I just put that out, when we think about Jesus Christ, that's looking at the past. But I also want you to think about the future. 
as well. Because you see, this Jesus did not remain dead. This Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus did not just rise from the dead. He vindicated. He showed us that his sacrifice was accepted by God. But there was a little bit more. Jesus Christ rising from the dead is to show us that he is the first of the new world that God is creating. When that new world culminates, it started with the resurrection of Jesus, but it will eventually culminate. You know what it's going to be? It is going to be a world that is ruled over by a king of justice and a world where justice dwells. Should I prove it to you? Jeremiah 23 verse 5. It says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous brand. What's the righteous brand? A king who will reign wisely and do what is and right in the land. What is the world that that king, what is the kingdom that that king is going to rule over? What does the new world that God is going to rule over look like? If the fallen world is already in injustice, what does the God of justice put this king to rule over? 2 Peter 3 verse, verse 13. It says, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where again the same word, not righteousness actually is not the best translation here. Where what? Justice dwells. Oh, I'm looking forward to that world. I'm looking forward to that world where there will be no outcasts. There will be no one. Brothers will not be lifting up things against brothers. People will not perpetrate injustice. We will not be defined by our social class. But that that world will be full of justice. Listen, the best thing about that world is that we'll see God. But can I give you a jara in that world? If you really want to know a society where there is injustice. If you enter into any city, I can give you probably the best way to find out is there justice in this place or is there injustice? It is through sounds. Sound. Sound. What do you hear? Sound. Just spend some time, 10 15 minutes, just go out and close your eyes. If you do not hear the sound of children on the streets playing, it is a land of injustice. If you don't hear the sound of children just running after each other, it is a sound, a city of injustice. Whenever we go out to the streets, how often do we hear the sound of children playing? Some people will say, no, I hear the sound of children playing all the time. I did not say children playing in the road of your estate, your gated estate. That gate already, that, those walls is telling you something. I didn't say children playing on the pathways of Ikoi Club. No. The fact that all of those things are fenced and there are barbed wires all around is telling you that we have created small oases of justice because we have made it for ourselves. I'm saying when we throw out all the walls, when we remove all the fences and all the gates, do you hear children playing in the streets? But there is a time coming. Zechariah in Zechariah 7 says, if they only obeyed me, yes, I would love it. But it says, if they obey me, Zechariah 8 says, when God comes to dwell in the final Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, I will return, go back, I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. And what is the result in the new heavens and new earth, new Jerusalem? The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. I look forward to that time. A time of justice when Jesus is fully reigning on the earth. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City Church Lagos. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. <laughs>